Well, good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And, and if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 3. We will read verses 4 to 7 as we consider our continued series, Salvation in Four Parts. Titus chapter 3 has Paul writing to Titus on the island of Crete, saying this in chapter 3 verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words this morning. We thank you for your gospel, the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, come to this earth to save wayward sinners like us. Lord, we pray for good understanding of our text this morning. We, we pray, Lord, for proper interpretation. We pray for a conviction in each of our hearts as to the meaning of the text and how we should, Lord, live it out in our lives. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there was uh, several of us from Calvary Bible that were blessed to attend both in person and virtually the uh, ACBC uh, counseling, biblical counseling conference this last week. And I just share that with you because I want you to know these things, that that we, we do have a counseling ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. If that is certainly ever a, uh, a need, then you can just give the church office a call and, um, and we will... Uh, get in contact with you. And, and, and biblical counseling really is nothing more than, than discipleship, um, usually pertaining to a, a specific issue or subject, um, something that might specifically be going on in somebody's life. But uh, I think it's just marvelous and, and really tremendous that we have people here at this church that have a desire to learn more specifically how to biblically counsel. And, um, and so again, just wanted to share that with you so you just know some of the things that are taking place amongst this body. And of course, when we go to a conference like this, we get all this great teaching. It's like they just open up the, the fire hydrant. You're just blasted with uh, good teaching. And, and um, I felt blessed to have some of my favorite preachers uh, preach to us, people like Abner Chow, who's the president of the Masters uh, University and Seminary. We had H.B. Charles. Um, we had one of my former uh, professors, Rick Holland, and it was, just, uh, it, was a, it was just a great time. So, just again, wanted to just share that with you. Back to our text this morning. We have now embarked upon verses 4 to 7 here in Titus chapter 3, again calling it salvation in four parts. We began last week with the kindness and love of God, and today will be the mercy of God. Next week will be the Holy Spirit of God, 
followed then by the grace of God. And all in the context of Jesus saving us. And all so that you can be the best witness, both inside and outside the church, of that salvation. And the best witness of Christ who gives grants that salvation and what we saw just briefly last week in this area of the kindness and love of God is that God the Father Yahweh is kind especially in the sense of being our Savior secondly we learn that God loves his creation those that he has created in his image that is people this would include believers and we learned also non-believers as we learned that God does indeed love his creation made in his image and consequently the gospel then indiscriminately needs to go out to all people of every tribe and every tongue every nation and because of this love God doesn't wish or desire for any to perish but for all to come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. However, he also knows that all men will willfully sin and and they would bear the consequences of that sin, so he made a plan. He made a plan whereas some would be predestined, they would be elected before the foundation of the world for that salvation to believe this too is all a part of his loving kindness. This leads us to the truth that God then appeared by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life and then die in our place as our substitute. We call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And finally, we learn that as our Savior God, in the form of his son, saved us. He saved us from the consequences of our sin, namely an eternal death in hell and the lake of fire. This brings us to the tremendous mercy of God. There's a story that on one night in 1935, Fiorello H. LaGuardia, mayor of New York, showed up at a night court in the poorest ward of the city. He dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench. One case involved an elderly woman who was caught stealing bread to feed her grandchildren. LaGuardia said, I've got to punish you. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. As he spoke, he threw ten dollars into his hat he then fined everyone in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat the hat was passed around and the woman left the courtroom with her fine paid and an additional 47 dollars and 50 cents because of this merciful judge Here's another one. A young lady who occasionally walked through the park after work stopped to have her picture taken by a photographer on this particular day. She was very excited about having her picture taken. It was a lovely day. And after having done so and continuing on her way, she looked at the printed out picture in total amazement. She turned on her heels and headed back to the cameraman. And when she got there, she admonished him, this is not right. This is not right. You have not shown me justice. 
the photographer looked at the picture and looked at her and simply said, Miss, you don't need justice. You need mercy. Sometimes we get exactly what we deserve. A speeding ticket for going over the limit. Passed over for a promotion maybe because of our own substandard work. A bad grade because you didn't turn in all your assignments. A consequence from your parents when you have disobeyed. But there are also occasions when you have received mercy. The police officer that lets you go with a warning. You get a promotion and a raise even when your work wasn't the best that it could be. A teacher gives you a better grade than you deserve. Oh, I'm so thankful for my seminary professors. (laughs) Your parents overlook the offense and actually bless you. Today, friends, we will be talking about a far grander version of mercy than any version this world could offer us. That is the mercy of God. Our passage is a short but sweet one. It's verse, technically speaking, 5b to 5c. And simply says that God saved us Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And that's our first point out of two points. Righteous deeds don't save. Righteous deeds don't save. And again, the context is God the Father and the basis for which He saves us. And let us also say right off the bat that deeds done in righteousness... Are, are not truly righteous deeds in God's eyes because they are deeds done prior to God saving us. They are seemingly righteous deeds. Righteous deeds in our eyes. The kinds of deeds that we think might bring us salvation, but in reality, any good or righteous deed done apart from knowing God the Father or His Son are not really righteous at all. We see this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, when the prophet speaks of those unworthy to be in the presence of God, saying, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. By the way, the literal translation of filthy garment is a menstrual cloth. How's that for a word picture? And I think this is a timely message, friends, because we live in an age where... Can we just say it? People feel entitled to certain things. They believe that they're entitled to, you know, cut in front of you at the coffee shop. Or uh, they demand to be seated before you at a busy restaurant without a reservation. In a job interview, they tell their potential employer what they will do and they won't do. And when they will work and when they won't work. 
And they, these are those that, that feel, or there are those that feel entitled to social services and rely on these instead of working themselves. In any case, the uh, entitled person is someone who believes that they deserve privileges or recognition for things that they did not earn. People experiencing this sense tend to believe that the world owes them something in exchange for nothing. I imagine that there are people out there in the world that believe this way even about heaven. Or at least an afterlife, some kind of afterlife with a with a positive nature, that they deserve this, and not because they've worked for it, or because they've even performed deeds of righteousness, or have somehow earned it, but because they see this world as difficult, or maybe painful, or unjust, or not something they asked for, or had no control over, and so they just simply deserve it. They deserve heaven. Okay, let's go back to a time when maybe even... uh, A few more Americans than seemingly today actually believed in working hard for what they have or what they want. I've said this before, but growing up in a middle-class family, and my wife likewise, we were both taught strong work ethics by both our parents. And not because things were so rough on us, and it was a matter of survival. It was just the right thing to do in order to get what you needed to get even what you wanted. In other words, we've been taught that when you work, yes, you can look forward to receiving something. (coughs) You receive payment for your work, whether that's money, whether that's something by trade, whatever the case may be. And I would say that is biblical. Where do we see this in the Bible? How about right there at the beginning in Genesis, where God instructs man to work by Filling, subduing, and ruling over the earth, while at the same time promising to provide for the man's needs. And then even after the fall, this would still be true. It would just be a lot more difficult for man, as God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Of course, now you will work even harder for the reward of your food. Knowing this, we might then understand how some would see this work for reward dynamic translating maybe even into the afterlife. If I work hard, then I should be rewarded and and I will be rewarded with heaven. If I do good deeds, I will have eternal life. I'm sure of it. The problem, of course, is that we live still in this sin-cursed world. Sin taints our hard work. It taints our motives other than bringing glory to God. We now engage in work and the reward we look to receive in a prideful way and for our own glory. In other words, I'm the one doing the work and so I am earning the reward for myself. And when this happens in regard to salvation, it becomes then what we call works 
righteousness. The idea that we can work our way to a blessed afterlife, even heaven. Oh, if I just, if I just act like a good person and I do good deeds for others, I'm sure paradise awaits. For those that are maybe a little more religious about it, they would say it's God that they need to please, hoping they have done enough righteous deeds, that their name is indeed written in the book of life. And, and Peter is standing there at the pearly gates, uh, hopefully arms out waiting to welcome them. They are hoping that when placed on God's cosmic scale, their good deeds will somehow outweigh their bad and they will be granted entrance into heaven, salvation. And of course, if they would even use this word salvation, no doubt they really don't understand what it means because by its definition, it is not about anything we do, but it is about being saved, rescued from something by someone And think of those in Scripture that believed they could earn God's favor by their righteous deeds. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God promises blessings for deeds done in righteousness and curses for deeds not done in righteousness. In in Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 2, um, God through Moses says, Now it shall be or this is Moses speaking, excuse me. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, right? That would be those deeds done in righteousness. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. God. It's that cause and effect if then, right? If you do this, then this will happen. Turn in your Bibles. You can keep Titus there, but turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Just back up a little bit to the left there. Galatians chapter 3. Now we look here for those who might think that by obeying the law, God's law, this would lead to salvation. Galatians 3 gives us a proper understanding of the law and its purpose. Chapter 3, we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 21. The middle of verse 21, Galatians 3, where Paul writes this, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Right? Just pause there for a sec, because in other words, by keeping the law, doing those deeds of righteousness, you would be made righteous. You would be granted eternal life. Excuse me. Verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. That word shut up there in the Greek literally means to enclose together. Okay? So everyone has been enclosed together under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. 
In other words, we were, we were considered guilty. We were condemned sinners being shut up, being enclosed together to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the works of the law would would show us our sin and our need for a Savior acting as our tutor. But of course, we would be justified by faith. And now that that faith has come, we don't need that tutor anymore. Fast forward to the New Testament. If there was ever a group that believed the righteous deeds, their righteous deeds would earn them favor with God, it was who? Pharisees, right? The Pharisees. So turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. Mark 7, verse 6. The Pharisees truly believed that they were doing works of righteousness that then counted for them as rewards, both in this life and in the life to come. By the way, the Pharisees, they were a sect of Judaism that believed not just in the written Torah, right? Those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, But they also believed, and this is important, they believed in the oral Torah, which is to say the traditions handed down through many generations of rabbis. And this is important to understand because their traditions, they considered their traditions as authoritative, even as authoritative as the written scripture was. And in some cases, their tradition would even trump the written scripture, as you will see In this passage of Mark chapter 7 verses 6 to 13. Where Jesus said to them. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written this people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin. That is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. In other words, they should help their mother and father when they would need help. But to get around it, they created this thing called Corbin, which is, well, if my money, if my property, all that I have, I'm I'm setting it aside for the, the use of the Lord. So sorry, mom and dad, because I'm doing that, I don't have to give you anything. You're on your own. 
In other words, their tradition said it was okay for them to not help taking care of their parents if they declared that their money, their assets, were actually a gift for God. Now, of course, they get to use them, uh, you know, on this earth, right? Jesus condemned the Pharisees and their works righteousness, and he often used them as negative examples, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, where he accuses them of practicing their righteousness before men in order to be noticed by them. He shares how in giving to the poor, they, they sound a trumpet in the synagogues and streets so that they will be honored by men. And when they fast, they do so with a gloomy face and they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men. And when they pray, they stand in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. <laughs> Good example of this is Jesus' parable of Luke 18 the Pharisee and the tax collector, both of whom were praying in the temple, the Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Throughout Paul's writings, we hear things like Romans 3.28, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In 2 Timothy 1.9, that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. And in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. (coughs) And of course, the point here is that because if we could somehow save ourselves what would we do? We'd boast. Our pride would get the best of us and we would take credit for what God has done, thus removing glory that God deserves. Think back, think back just for a minute to some of the deeds that you might have done before becoming a believer that, that you thought might have gained you entrance into heaven. What were some of the things that you did to hopefully, you know, tip the scales in your favor? You probably tried to generally be a good person, right? I like to think that I I thought the best about people, uh, act kindly to others, treat others as you would want them to treat you. You you probably obeyed the law. And while you're not perfect, you haven't killed anyone. You haven't robbed a bank. You maybe tried to be a good neighbor, handing out cups of sugar, right, to your neighbors and helping them to wheel up their trash cans after trash pickup day, or maybe even giving them a hand in their yard. Maybe you are someone who gives things to those in need or to charitable organizations. Maybe you help out at your kid's school or coach a youth sports team. Maybe you serve Thanksgiving dinner at the local mission and you donate toys for tots at Christmas. Maybe your good deeds are a little more directed towards the church. You, you make the effort to get to church most 
Sunday mornings. You occasionally give to the offering if you've got some extra. You try and read your Bible once in a while. You say quick silent prayers at meals. If the church is in dire need of people to serve, then okay, yes, I will step up and serve. But i got to check my calendar first. Maybe you even donate some toys to the Christmas outreach. Or maybe you have, maybe you have done these things with great zeal, with gusto, only to realize that these deeds done in righteousness could not save you. God didn't save you because you did any of these things. <clears throat> this leads us to our second point, final point. Only God's mercy saves Only God's mercy saves. Back in our text, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now, mercy, by definition, is compassion and active pity. Grace, by definition, is rejoicing brought on by favor, goodwill, or benevolence. In contrasting mercy and grace, the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament says this, quote, God's grace is a free gift displayed in the forgiveness of sins as offered to men in their guilt. God's mercy is extended for the alleviation of the consequences of sin. Grace identifies the free nature of salvation, that which is unmerited and without obligation. Mercy is the application of grace and reminds us that redemptive freedom rescued us from the pathetic condition of our sinfulness, end quote. In other words, grace gives what we don't deserve, namely the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life, while mercy keeps us back from what we do deserve, namely death and punishment in hell and the lake of fire. In Ephesians 2, backing up a little bit, going to verses 4 to 5, Paul says, but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mercy withholding grace giving. 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Paul again saying, I was Formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Again, mercy withholding, grace giving. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great, what's the word? Mercy, 
has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In James 2 and verse 13, he tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. There will be no judgment because of God's mercy. And in Jude 21, this is for believers. And it's about the, the, the future mercy that believers still look forward to. When he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. It's even the, the mercy of Christ that completes our salvation in the end. Truth is, Salvation can only occur, friends, if God deals with this horrendous problem of human sin. And in the context of God's mercy, the consequences of that sin. We mentioned some of these last week in regard to hell and the lake of fire. The fact that it's a place of separation and everlasting destruction. It's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of outer darkness, a furnace of fire, a blazing furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire and brimstone, conscious punishment and torment. It is eternal, irreversible, and a place to be avoided at all costs. Now last week you heard from 18th century preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And I think there is no better definition of mercy, at least I haven't found it yet, than what we hear from him again, this time though from that sermon of old, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which teaches us very graphically about the deep truths of the mercy of of God. And and what you have to remember about God's mercy <clears throat> is that it is all the while being displayed against the backdrop of his fierce anger towards sin, towards sinners. In fact, because of the way God's attributes work, he can be 100% angry, 100% merciful all at the same time. This is the difference between God and us. Unfortunately, even our occasional righteous anger will be tainted by sin. And so rarely can we be angry while maintaining a merciful spirit. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God wasn't a paper that Edwards published. It wasn't an email he sent. But it was a sermon that he preached to his congregation. Real people sitting there in the pews, face to face, listening to his every word. The message presumed tares amongst the wheat. This was his primary audience. We'll pick up just about halfway through his sermon after he has made Scripture's case for the wicked man's deserved punishment in hell And as I read some of this, just be thinking about how it demonstrates God's mercy. He preaches the use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. 
That world of misery, that take of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping open mouth. And you have nothing to stand on nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. And it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Edwards then presents five distinct pictures of God's wrath tempered by his mercy. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder and were it not for the restraining hand of God it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind otherwise it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. And if God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow and is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. However, you may have reformed your life in many things. And you may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. And it is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider 
or some other loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did in his prince did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. Oh, sinner, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, knowing nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Towards the end, Edwards preaches, but here you are. In the land of the living and in the house of God. And have an opportunity to obtain salvation. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor sinners. And he ends with these words. Therefore, let every one of you that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. That's it. That's how he ends it. I went back and checked several manuscripts. That's how it ends. He probably won't receive any invites to fill in for Joel Osteen (laughs) when Joel's on vacation. I don't know that Edwards has any sermons titled Your Best Life Now, Empty Out the Negative, or You Can Live the Dream. 
we have to sometimes temper life with humor, huh? And at the same time, we have to be keenly aware of the truth of God and his word. And, and, and again, what, what, I, what I want you to see from these, these excerpts is just again the incredible mercy of God and how it's only by his mercy that God holds us back from exactly what we deserve. That because of his mercy and his mercy alone, we are kept out of the pit of hell. There was a young soldier in Napoleon's army who committed an offense worthy of death. The day before he was scheduled for the firing squad, the young man's mother went to Napoleon and asked him to show mercy for her son. Napoleon harshly replied, Woman, your son does not receive, does not deserve mercy. I know, the mother answered. If he deserved it, then it would not be mercy. Right? That's the truth. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Mercy is the simple fact that we don't deserve it. But yet God would graciously give it to us. What what do we walk out of here with today? What, What about mercy should we be impressed by? How should this affect us? I would say, first and foremost, for you who know Christ, remember the futility of trying to do deeds of righteousness to somehow earn favor with God and thus gain entrance into heaven. Remember, too, I pray, how ultimately unsatisfying and, and I hope, unsettling it was for you, it was for me, knowing Never knowing if you had done enough good deeds to outweigh your bad. Well, how did they go? Am I here? Am I here? Am I here? Each hour, each second, we would be asking that question, right? Seesaw. Remember this. And, and, And why? Why should we remember this? So that you are all the more filled with such gratitude. Oh, and thankfulness. And praise to our our God, your Savior. And secondly, this should then cause you to be reminded that you are only saved because of the tremendous mercy of God. that, that, That you and I were that heavy weight of lead falling into the pit but being held back by God's hand. You and I had the black clouds of God's dreadful storm of wrath hanging over our heads, ready to burst were it not for the restraining hand of God. You and I had the fierce and fiery floods of wrath increasing and rising higher against you, save for the floodgate of God's hand holding them back. You and I had that bow, that bow of wrath bent, straining with the arrow made ready on the string, pointed at your heart with nothing but God's Mere pleasure holding back that string. You and I were being held by God's hand like a spider being held by one strand of silk as the flames would lick up around us 
Yet he is keeping you from falling into the pit. So thank God for his mercy. And friends, take these gospel truths out there in the world. Preach these gospel truths first and foremost to yourself each and every day. Preach them to each other here in the church and then again take them out and unleash them on that world because they need to know the mercy of God. They need to know the grace of God. They need to know the love of God. They need salvation just as you and I once did. And for those of you who are not yet saved, the ones that Jonathan Edwards had in mind while he was preaching this sermon, stop trusting in your righteous deeds. Because they are not righteous. They are like filthy rags. Your good works can't save you. They won't. And only by crying out for the mercy and grace of God can you be saved. So friend, please acknowledge your life of sin. Acknowledge your need of Jesus as your Savior. Repent and believe in Him, trusting in His death on the cross for your forgiveness of sins. And that He not just went down dead into the grave, but resurrected three days later, conquering sin and death. So that you could be resurrected so that you could have everlasting, eternal life. Put your faith in Him today because today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't walk out these doors. You don't know what's going to happen out there in the world. You don't know when your last breath is going to be. Don't wait and well, you know, I've got a lot of fun to have out there in the world first, and I'll make sure, you know, by the time I'm on my deathbed, I'll, I'll take care of things with the Lord. No, today, right now, is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not after you've had your fun and grown old. You are the spider being held by one strand of silk with the flames surrounding you. How long will it be before that strand is severed? And you are cast into the fiery hell. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy truths, Lord. And at the same time, they are glorious truths. That you are indeed a just and all-righteous God. Help us, Lord, to not trust in our deeds of righteousness, but only in your mercy, your grace. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning, may they not walk out the doors of this building before they have trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.